gospel according to John. Remember, we don't have four gospels. We only have one gospel according to four writers. That's actually something we've been so much somehow accused by having four gospels, but we do not. We have one gospel. So the gospel according to John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, it's on page 8 of your uh, worship guide, or if you have your Bible, you may open it and (coughs) read through. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. You may be seated. Father, I beg you to speak and make the words of my mouth And the meditations of our hearts be acceptable at your sight, our rock, our redeemer, our Lord, our God, and our Savior. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The first sign, verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And that's the title of our sermon, the first sign of Jesus' mission. The church does not have a mission. Mission has the church. God's mission has the church. The church does not create a certain mission, but God has the church to carry on his mission. If the church is caught with God's vision of what he did and what he is doing in the world. We heard Pastor Bill saying, taking the gospel to different religions, whether Muslims or Buddhists or even nominal Christians who have not experienced the true power of the gospel. It is because the reason of everyone's existence is Jesus. Whether we like it or not, God created the world by his own speech, by his own word, by his own logic. And God said this, 
and things came into being. That's Genesis 1. The engine powers of God's creation in Genesis is actually through the word of God. That's why John starts in his gospel, by him everything was made and nothing was made which was made without him. In the beginning, Jesus was the word. And this is the first sign of Jesus. And the word sign in Greek, yes, it is a miracle, but it's really, John is saying it's a miracle, but he's saying this is the first sign. He used the Greek word simeon to say this is the first thing that points to someone. This is a sign that leads you somewhere. It's like you, you have the sign of, of, of uh, darkness today, it's going to rain. This is what John is, is using here. This is the first sign of Jesus. Of, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. As it's as if John, I mean, you know, John Calvin said once, the synoptic gospels, meaning Matthew, Mark, and Luke, reveal to us, show us Jesus' body. Jesus became human, yes, they show us how he was born. John's gospel, or John, show us Jesus' soul. He takes us, he was the one that long meditated on what Jesus did. And of course he knew about the three gospels, three versions of the gospel, I'm sorry. See, I did the mistake. <laughs> he was the one that Jesus loved. He was the youngest. He put his head on his chest and uh, reclined. And imagine yourself like hearing the heartbeat of Jesus. So he's someone, after long meditating, he went back to write his own version of the gospel, and he took us to the eternal identity of Jesus Christ while John is rewriting Genesis. In the beginning. That's what Genesis 1 tells us. In the beginning, God made heavens and earth. And John is saying, in the beginning, Jesus was the word of God. Logos, logic. He was the logic of God. You know, and then here he's saying, Jesus did this as the first sign to show and manifest his glory. And in chapter 1, verse 14, John says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us templed among us, pitched his tent among us. What temple means in every sense of the word was applied there in Jesus' incarnation. And we have seen his glory as of the only son. And John is as if he's saying, come, I want you to see this glory with me. I want you to be passionate like me about the glory that we have seen. And I'm sharing the story of the wedding at Cana in order to show you what it means so you would see the glory of Jesus and you speak of this glory everywhere you go. You know, temple, um, worship, worship and mission, they go hand in hand, by the way. Let me read something for you from what uh, Greg Beale wrote in his book, God Dwells Among Us. He said, we sacrifice for what satisfies. The soul-satisfying riches in the presence of God propel us out of our comfort zones, 
calling us out of the warm confines of our beds to our knees in early morning prayer and meditation on God's word. Only these soul-satisfying riches can sustain us in the rigors God's calling on our lives as we move out to proclaim his name to the nations across the street and across the globe. A heart for mission grows out of a soul that finds satisfaction in God's presence, the riches of which can be seen, are you ready, in the imagery of Eden. He's saying that worship fuels mission because the significance of mission is about the image of God. Go and fill the earth and multiply the earth by bringing babies and more children so God's image will fill the earth. Now, how do we see this in the commission of Jesus in Matthew 28? Go and multiply God's image. And so the conclusion, he said, that our mission grows out of Adam and Eve's commission to multiply image bearers who expand the boundaries of God's glorious presence in Eden until it fills the whole earth. Our mission is fueled by our worship as God's image bearers in God's tabernacling presence, which is now in Christ, who is the temple, reflecting and representing God's presence in the earth. Isn't that beautiful? It's as if in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there's something about timing also. On the first day, on the second day, on the, on the fourth day, on the fifth day, on the sixth day. And God rested on the seventh day. God brought heaven and earth to being. But his, his mission was and still is to bring that union between heavens and earth. And so he created man as his image to stand at the intersection of heavens and earth to bring this unity. And yet when we failed, we still go to the temple in the Old Testament to stand at this intersection because the temple is when heaven and earth meet together. It's God's dwelling among people. Where God is, heaven is. It's not a geographical location as we've learned at schools probably. Otherwise we would have reached it. It's the different dimension. It's God's space. But dangerously, man would come as sinful as we are before a holy God, therefore we need the shedding of blood to stand at this intersection. And in Jesus, the God-man, the fully God, all of heaven comes down to earth. And the fully man, we see that union of heavens and earth coming together. In Jesus, we see that last Adam, that perfect man, restoring God's image and bringing back our vocation as image bearers to show us what it means to live in the presence of God. Because in Jesus, heavens and earth are united. The two natures, God and men, without confusion, are one in Jesus. That's how the world would look like when Jesus would return. As John Murray said, it's not about us going to heaven. It's heaven coming down to earth. And it's like the earth will become heaven and heaven will become earth. That's what it means when it is called new heavens and new earth. And the whole earth will be filled of the knowledge of God and glory of God as the water covers the sea. How does the water cover the sea? The water is the sea. And that's the main reason for this 
to tell us that heaven will become earth and earth will become heaven. Everything invisible from angels and others will be visible. John is telling us something here in the, the wedding at Cana that Jesus did about his timing and God's timing. It's a perfect timing. Why? Look what he said in, the, in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. What is it with John giving, ta taking us to the timing on the third day? Well, you have to think of Genesis. You have to think of John rewriting Genesis here. Look with me, if you have your Bibles, in chapter 1. Look with me on <clears throat> verse 28 of chapter 1. He's telling us about John the Baptist and, and John saying he's the voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. In verse 28, those things took place in Bethany across Jordan where John was baptizing. They took place that day, that timing when John was baptizing. That's what? Day one. Right? Go down with me to verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus, John saw that's day two, correct? It's the next day. <clears throat> and then go with me to verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of these disciples. That's day three. And then <clears throat> if you go with me to verse 43, the next day, that's again, another day after Jesus had the disciples coming to his place, the next day, Jesus decided to go on to Galilee. That's a three days journey on your feet. So that's day. Are you counting? What's day? <clears throat> three? Four. That's day four. Now, John in chapter 2 verse 1 said, On the third day. On the third day from day four, in the Jewish calendar, it does not make them seven days. It makes them six days. So day four is number one. Day, two, day, day five is number two. Day six is number three. What happens in creation on the sixth day? God created man. And there was a beautiful wedding between Adam and Eve. And yet, they have sinned. And they have been exposed to shame because of sin. And they needed something to cover their shame. And so what we see here is John is saying something about the identity of Jesus Christ that is the only one who can cover your shame. Imagine yourself having a wedding and you ran out of wine. That's in the Middle East shame. I mean, we say something, I mean, I, I'm, sure it, I'm sure it's the same here, but in the Middle East we say, let's have plenty of food, plenty of drinks in our wedding, lest we have any lack. It's better to have Surplus than to have lack. This is like actually an equation. Everybody knows it. But if you have a lack, you do not have any more wine or any more food for people, you are embarrassed. Big time. And John is picking up this story and saying, I want you to see new creation in Jesus Christ, the new wedding that begins how Jesus covers our shame. <clears throat> and here we see in conversation number one about the perfect timing, we see in conversation number one, Mary coming to Jesus, Mary the mother of Jesus, and uh, she comes to him and said to him, they have 
no wine. That's in verse 3. Now, Mary is a relative to this, to this family, definitely. And, and, and they surely, she was working with them. She was helping. She was one probably of the managers there. Um, she comes to Jesus and she says, oh my God, she, she, this is her only son. Who shall she talk to? Oh, I, they have no more wine. They have no more wine. Maybe she's asking him, what shall we do? What, what do you think should be done? Now, there are many interpretations for this conversation between Jesus and Mary. Many interpretations. And you will come to the conversation between Jesus and Mary to see that Jesus is telling Mary something there. He said to her, Women, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come, has not yet come. That's the, about the perfect timing. Is it the perfect timing for Jesus to reveal who he is to manifest his glory? Then why is he saying this? My hour has not yet come. Why did he call her woman? Imagine your son is calling you like you come, Mom, I want to tell you something. Could you please help me, help your daddy do something there? And you would say, Women! I mean, what, what, what would you feel? Many deep philosophers I've heard in the Middle East explaining this that because they are Catholics, that Mary ordered him to do the miracle. And we know Jesus came to Cana for a purpose. And John is telling us, like, he came with his, his, he was invited with his disciples. Obviously, the text tells us, because they are his relatives. But I don't believe Jesus did not come, uh, did Jesus, Jesus, that Jesus came to the wedding not knowing what's he going to do. And, and calling her woman, I don't think Jesus is, is not respectable. He's not a respectful person. He's not, he's not someone who would teach us to be rude with our mothers. He's the perfect example of how humanity should be. So what's going there in this conversation? Actually, if you look at the Greek text, you would have a better version for this conversation. It's as if he's saying there, women, what do you think we have to do with this? What have you and I to do with this? Does it make sense to you somehow? What is Jesus saying? Well, this is Mary who raised Jesus, who fed Jesus. This is Mary who taught him the scriptures. This is Mary who told him about himself. What happened at the fall? Genesis 3. What happened? God cursed the earth and brought his curses, but at the same time he brought what is called the Proto-Evangelion, the gospel before the gospels, like the, like the pre-gospel, the promise. What was the promise? I will put enmity, and thank God he did put enmity between us and Satan, the serpent. And that's, sometimes God does put enmity, and it's good, because if he, does not, if he did not put enmity, we would have become demons. I will put enmity between you and the women, and her seed and your seed. You, he will crush your head, you will bruise his heel. This is a password between Jesus and Mary. Jesus is saying to Mary, this is a revelation of his identity. This fits well with John's gospel, with John's version of the gospel, telling us about Jesus' identity, who he is. He is the seed of the woman. 
And that's precisely why John used this word, women, because he, he knew from Mary, of course, because he was the one who took her home, that Jesus told her, women. It's as if Jesus is saying, Mary, what, do we have, what have we to do with this? Do you know? Women, you're the woman. I'm the seed. It's a password. That's why Mary rejoiced and said, go do whatever he tells you. He knows it all. The second time John used the word women was on the cross. When he said, women, about John, this is your son. To John, this is your mother. Take care of her. Well, the first time he said woman, my hour has not come yet. The second time he said woman, he did not say my hour has not come yet. Why? Because that's the hour he's talking about. The cross. It's as if Jesus' conversation with Mary in perfect timing, revealing his identity, saying, Mary, do you know what we have to do with this? Remember what you taught me when I was young? Out of the seed of the woman will come he who will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise his heel. He did not say it all. He doesn't have to. They understand each other. He says, he's as if he's saying to her, Mary, you're that woman, right? Do you know what we have to do with this? Now is the time. Now is the perfect time to manifest my glory. And I am the seed. But my hour to be for the, for, for the, for, to be bruised in my heel from Satan on the cross has not come yet. Because when that comes, I will crush the head of the serpent. It's beautiful, isn't it? If, if I don't continue the sermon, I think it's enough with this to leave you with. But for the sake of time, let me jump with a perfect cover. Cover of shame. If you look with me, actually, after Jesus having this conversation with Mary, and she said, do whatever he tells you, verses 6 through 9, we see that, or actually 6 to 8, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars. What did Jesus do here? Now, on a surface level, we know that Jesus did the miracle, right? He, transfer, he, he, he did the miracle of transforming the, wine, the water into wine, making out of wine, of, out of water wine. That's not something that is subject to any science or, or biological uh, way of doing things. You cannot produce out of water wine. He's declaring himself as the Lord of creation. He's showing that he has power on things to bring things into being from even nothing, if you want. As God brought, you know, uh, uh, the, the whole world into being out of nothing. But yet, what did God do in creating man? It's not ex nihilo. It's not out of nothing. He made him out of something God made that is very weak. It's called dust, extodusto. So out of dust, God breathed and made man. And Jesus is using creation, the water, and he's making out of it the wine. The wine actually is what they need for their shame to be gone away. They are embarrassed. How are we going to face the master of the feast and all the people we've, been in, we've invited? And Jesus has to do something in his mission. That's the first sign of his mission. He has to do this thing. Now, if you look at the, at the 
carefully at the words John uses here. Now there were six stone water jars. He counted them. One, two, three, four, five, six. What are they used for? Therefore, the Jewish rites of purification. So the water were used, the, the jars of water were used for purification from sins. They were actually something related to the law. And John counted them. It's as if after long meditating on Jesus' life, went back to say, wait a minute. I got it now. And I want to share it with you. Six jars. Number six in Jewish concept, in Jewish understanding, it's the imperfection. Because God made the heavens and the world in six days, and he rested on the seventh. That's the perfection. God's resting. John is saying... There's something related to the identity of Jesus. He's the seed of the woman. But he's something also connected to the law, to the Jewish uh, rites of purification. He's not just someone who would cover your shame in public. He's also someone who would cover your shame before the Father. Because what John is saying here is precisely what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for our sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That's something related to the identity of the seed of the woman that this seed of the woman promised by is the one who will perfect the law. What the law weakened in the flesh, meaning the law does tell me that I sin. The law tells me, do not covet. I do covet. I find out that I am a weak sinner. The law tells me, do not steal. I take my, my, my friend at school, I take his, uh, his, his pen or something, or even when I'm grown up. I mean, <clears throat> you know, every one of us is a sinner. The law has no power to transform you from within, change you to be stronger than sin. But the law has the power to condemn you. And to tell you, you are a sinner. To remind you that there's something greater that you need. The law is just, it's horrible to face the law. And, and, and Paul is saying in Romans 8 that for what God weakened in the flesh, in the, in the human nature, the law could not transform or change the character. God sending his son is what changes you. And that's what Jesus did. Because he's the word of God. Anarchy in a logos. In the beginning was the logic, the word. He's the word by which God made heavens and earth. And he's the word who became flesh and templed among us in order to bring us back to worship and restore God's image in us. Which means, which means, when we come to worship God as image bearers, we go out to the world as the church and we are caught by God's mission and vision. And that's why exactly you do not have a mission to create. The church does not have a mission. But God's mission has the church to be caught by this. Go and seek to multiply or restore God's image around you and in the world. By telling them that your shame, everybody has shame. Everybody. Your shame can only be covered by the identity of the seed of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent. For the sake of time, let me jump to the last point, perfect taste. Now, if you look at verses 9 and, uh, through 11, uh, you will see, or through 9 and 10, basically, you will see that um, 
Um, when the master of the feast uh, tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, then what did he say? <clears throat> he called the, the guy and said, you know, people serve the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. Um, something I, I remember um, um, coming from a city in Zahli. Uh, that city is known by uh, making manufacturing uh, alcohol, like Arak, which is Uzu, um, and wine, actually, Ksara, Kifraya. <clears throat> I do remember uh, sometimes f friends would say, like, usually we, we bring the, the good alcohol, whiskey or whatever, and then, when, you know, when people get drunk, they don't feel it anymore. So we'll give them the cheap things. They think we're still giving them Chivas Regal or whatever. I mean, this is something common over there. But you don't just start with the bad thing because they will taste it and they will notice. But once they, they get drunk, sadly, they, they, not, they not only lose their sober mind, but they also lose their taste probably. <clears throat> so, so imagine what this wine did to the master feast. Jesus, by doing this, did not only cover the shame, he actually brought honor and glory. So the master of the feast said, usually people bring the poor wine first, the good wine first, and then when we're drunk, they give us the poor wine. What you did, actually, you did quite the opposite. You kept the best to the last. It's a perfect taste. It's a wine that I have never tasted in my life. What was the master feast doing? There was some sort of prophecy related to the identity of Jesus who manifested his glory. That God kept the best to the last. Yes, he gave us the law. Yes, he made creation. But he redeemed his creation. And he kept the best of what he sent for, for humanity till the end. And this is exactly how Jesus manifested his glory. Let me, let me conclude with something from a, a story that I've been reading since the, we talked about the three wise men who came from Persia, from Iran. And you know that uh, there's a story of the 300 Spartans fighting with Xerxes, the, uh, the god of gods, the lord of lords of the Iranian. Now, for, for the sake of time, again, I'm not going to go into details, but after the 300 men with King Leonidas died at the Battle of Thermopylae, uh, King Leonidas sent a, a messenger. A messenger. There's something there uh, that is not perfect, but it shows you somehow when you taste the goodness of something, how you speak about it. The messenger said the following <clears throat> when he came back to, to speak to people. He said, remember us. As simple as an order as a king can give. Remember why we died. He did not wish tribute or song, no monuments, no poems of war and valor. His wish was simple. Remember us. Remember why we died. Go tell the Spartan passerby that there by Spartan law we lie. And so my king died and my brothers died. Time has proven him wise. From, for from free Greek to free Greek, that bold Leonidas and his 300 so far from home laid down their lives, but for all Greece. Something about his words that are very powerful, and he made the whole army scream at the end, saying, yes, we're going to go to war. He said, a king had a simple request. Remember 
us. And that's something you should remember on what are the basis or why we died. What are the values we died for? And you know that this story inspired the Western civilization. If you read history and sociology, you will find out that Socrates, Plato, and, 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 uh, and Aristotle got inspired by the action of the Battle of the 300. That's why you find in the West, it's better for me to, to, to die on my, knee, on my feet than to live on my knees. It's about freedom. It's about knowing yourself that, that Socrates started by his great thought. Know yourself. They got inspired by this story. And this story is about dead men who did not come back to life. What is it about this man that came back to life? Isn't it a more powerful story? It's the story of all stories that we are called to live in the story and out of the story as a church to be on a mission to the world by remembering Jesus as we're going to do in the Lord's table. Remember us. It's actually remember Jesus Christ. Remember the values he died for. Remember that he died for the sake of the Father to bring creation back to order to bring the God's image and to restore God's image in and multiply it in the people around you. Remember when you hold the bread and the wine that God is as real as this bread and wine in my hand. Jesus was so real. And he's going to come again in his own timing. And all what we are called for now is to remember Jesus and speak of the Lord's death until he comes again. To go around speaking to those around us and seeking mission that is not ours. It's God's mission. Go, therefore. All authority has been given to me based on this. I am the one doing it. You're the instruments. Would you like to be instruments? Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And behold, I'm with you always. Always. Till the end of ages and he will come again.